This evening I'd like to talk about suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering, all in 45 minutes. <laughs> uh, the heart of Buddhist meditation really lies in the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are composed of a number of very simple statements that begin with saying that there is pain, there is unsatisfactoriness, and there is suffering in life. And that there is a cause of suffering and unsatisfactoriness. That there is an end, a cessation of suffering, in liberation, in awakening, in enlightenment, and that there is a path to the end of suffering. And that statement about a path, which is the fourth noble truth, is really twofold. One, it describes the very practical application of meditation and its development. And the other aspect of the path is also the spirit in which we undertake it, undertake the path. And those two together of the form and the spirit actually really are the factors that make what we do here into a kind of pilgrimage or quest. The, sp the spirit and the form together really are what makes what we are doing here into a kind of sacred journey. That there is a direction in everything that we do here. This direction is towards happiness, towards peace, towards intimacy, towards freedom. Its direction is also a departure. It is a way of learning to leave behind an ocean of sorrow and unhappiness and separation. In the Buddhist tradition, this journey, or this pilgrimage, is described as waking up from a dream. Obviously, to have the, the right spirit, or the transforming spirit, which makes this path meaningful, that that transforming spirit actually begins with asking ourselves, why do we meditate? You know, why do we choose to do this? Why do we personally choose to devote ourselves to deepening in wisdom? Now, clearly, we are not the first people to do this. You know. For countless centuries, I mean, it's not like we invented meditation that Gaia has or something. For countless centuries, countless people have sought this kind of solitude, at the solitude of meditation on mountaintops, in caves, in deserts. Now one question to ask ourselves is, would we choose um, this kind of journey, this kind of pilgrimage, if we felt there to be present in our lives and in ourselves an abundance of happiness and freedom? A sense of completeness, uh, that there is no sense of there being anything amiss, 
and that we abided, abided in enduring bliss, probably we wouldn't be here. Possibly. <laughs> it seems to me that the enticement of any journey is twofold. That one part of this journey that we make here is this kind of magnetism. The magnetism of happiness, the magnetism of peace, the magnetism of intimacy, of freedom, that sense of possibility in our lives. So in one way, this journey is a drawing towards something that we feel is possible. And the other aspect of this journey is that possibility of extinguishing and bringing about an end to suffering and to sorrow. So, what is sorrow? What is suffering? Well, I'm sure we could drop a pretty detailed list here. There are many, many, obviously, different forms and different dimensions of pain and sorrow that we find in our world, that we find in our bodies, that we find in our minds, that we find in our hearts. There's the sorrow of loneliness and confusion, and there is a very, I think, a very deep level of sorrow, a kind of existential sorrow, which is the painfulness of separation, the painfulness of feeling apart, the painfulness of feeling disconnected, apart from others, apart from the moment, apart from our world. And actually, we experience that sense of separation in many different forms in our lives. Sometimes we experience the sorrow of that separation when we feel distanced or apart what we long for in terms of happiness and freedom. Sometimes we feel the suffering of separation when we feel apart or unable to get what we want. Sometimes we feel the suffering of separation when we feel not at home in ourselves when we feel somewhat disconnected, somewhat distanced from a sense of authenticity or ease within our own being. Now, the Buddha described this sense of separation or banishment or disconnection as samsara. So samsara. A kind of perpetual wandering or a kind of endless and restless wandering through life and through existence as if in a dream. Always looking for something, looking for a place to be at ease, looking for a place to be at home, looking for a place of peace and well-being. And yet, despite the restlessness of that wandering, not very often finding that place of rest. And so, wandering on through many, many different kinds of journeys in our lives. The journeys that we make in terms of looking for an authentic identity or role. The journeys that we make through different kinds of experiences, uh, through different kinds of um, searches, spiritually, socially, culturally, trying to find something. Now, the Buddha also spoke about waking up 
from this perpetual wandering and discovering an ultimate stillness of being, a place or a way of being where there is an end to the repetitive cycles of discontent and where there is a discovery of a vastness of being, of spaciousness, of peace, of compassion, of inner freedom, where there is a place of being awake. And the Buddha spoke of this discovery as the point of waking up, or the extinguishing the fire of wandering. Now this waking up that is spoken about, not only in the Buddhist tradition, but in all traditions, this waking up is not described as some sort of magical process where we suddenly discover the right formula or somebody waves a magic wand for us. This process of waking up is not described as being a product of thinking or of time even. And this sense of waking up is also not described as just being a kind of momentary experience or breakthrough that is then forgotten and we go back to sleep afterwards. Rather, this point of waking up is described as being born of clear and wise understanding that illuminates misunderstanding. I think in Buddhist teaching, there is not the encouragement to strive for enlightenment or Buddhahood or awakening, waking up as some distant destination, you know, that we're going to kind of accumulate merit and finally arrive there. But rather, it is described as, waking up is described as ceasing to be a non-Buddha, ceasing to be a non-Buddha, illuminating that misunderstanding. And wisdom in this path is described as a kind of unmasking. You know, there's an unmasking of delusion. There's an unmasking of misunderstanding that clarity and understanding allows or makes misunderstanding or delusion to become more and more transparent. Now, to deeply know the end of suffering, it is equally, I think, necessary to just as deeply understand the cause of suffering, so that we're no longer a participant or a participating player in weaving the web of samsara, which is the second noble truth. And the Buddha said that the cause of suffering is tanha. Tanha. A tanha is described as unquenchable thirst, otherwise known as craving. Unquenchable thirst is the cause of suffering. Now many people, I think, especially in the West, feel some resistance to this teaching for different reasons. One is that we 
prefer to externalize suffering, quite frankly. We prefer to externalize the causes of suffering. And we also really rather have an inclination to want to make suffering something very complex in its causes. Because it, is, it appears to be somewhat easier to externalize the causes of suffering. For example, it's more satisfactory to, or it feels more satisfactory to blame and to avoid than to understand suffering. And also, it's satisfactory because if we are blaming someone or something else for suffering, you know, suddenly we are very offered this very active role, aren't we? We have something to do if the causes of suffering lie in someone else or the circumstances of our lives. It gives us the opportunity to slot into that very familiar role of the fixer and the doer and the striver and the perfecter. It's not to say that there, you know, this world is perfect and we happen to be the only ones who are neurotic within it. There is certainly some suffering out there which we're not causing. Um, and yet, to be always very habitual in this role of suffer our suffering is actually keeps us in some ways bound to the very busyness and agitation, which is the very nature of samsara. We also sometimes, I think, feel that it's too simplistic to say that craving is the cause of suffering. For example, you know, we can probably think of a lot of things that seem to cause pain and sorrow and conflict in our lives. Well, think of all the things we don't have and want. You know, that seems to be a considerable cause of suffering. We can think, when we think of suffering, we can think, well, you know, I've got this really busy life. It drives me crazy. You know, I've got these really unpleasant neighbors I have to live with, or I've got this really critical mother-in-law. You know, and there's countless things that go wrong in our lives. Um, which actually seem to cause us suffering. In fact, sometimes I think we can feel that, you know, there are this whole pile of circumstances and people and experiences and small irritations that exist in the world whose mission is to cause us to suffer. It also, you know, sometimes externalizing suffering also seems easier because it relieves us actually of the need to look a little bit more deeply within ourselves and to see the ways in which we may be a participant in the process of suffering. Not to say that we are causing suffering, but to look at the ways in which we might be a participant in the process of suffering. The, some people take a different position, of course. They don't externalize the causes of suffering. They totally internalize it. You know, it's everything is my fault. You know, there are all the, the countless ways in which we annoy and disappoint ourselves, the mistakes that we make, the ways that we get entangled in our history and confusion, and we become the subject of blame. Now, an interesting exploration is to, is to ask ourselves, what would happen in our lives if we simply withdrew all blame? If we let go, even 
for a moment of those pathways of attributing fault, of attributing blame. If we had the willingness simply to look and to stay present with, in the moment, with the present actuality and the very nature of suffering. Now, beneath many of the forms of suffering we meet, beneath the confusion, beneath the anger, beneath the judgment, beneath the greed, between, beneath many of the conflicts we encounter, beneath many of our aversions, what do we find? Well, surprise, surprise. Very often we find tanha. We find craving an unquenchable thirst that we are seeking to ease. There's the suffering of getting what we don't want. There's the suffering of not getting what we want. There's the suffering of not being satisfied even when we do get what we want. This kind of eternal discontent that feels there is never enough. Never enough. That's the feeling of tanha. That's the feeling of craving, that there is never enough. Now, what do we see beneath the restlessness and the craving if we look a little bit more deeply? We see fear and anxiety. A Christian mystic once said that anxiety is the mood of ignorance. So interesting. That anxiety is the mood of not feeling that we have enough, of not feeling whole within ourselves. Now, anxiety in itself is as close to separation as our breath is to our lives. It is this presence of anxiety, of fear, that makes us want to run, to flee from ourselves into restlessness, into wandering, into wanting, always seeking for the completeness or the happiness or the freedom that we feel to be missing, and yet often finding frustration. Now, attempting to alleviate this chronic restlessness through craving, through wanting, is sometimes likened to drinking salt water to quench our thirst. The presence or the burden of craving, <coughs> born of anxiety, born of this sense of incompleteness, is like an appetite in our life like an insatiable appetite. It is like, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you've broken your arm or you've broken your leg and you get an itch inside the cast, you know, and it just drives you mad. You know, you get really, really tricky and really ingenious at trying to scratch the itch and you poke sticks down your cast and really needles, you know, and nothing works. Nothing works. That is like craving. Once I was teaching a retreat for children and we were talking about this subject of craving and wanting. 
And I said to the children, I said, you know, what do you think happens? What do you think you get if you go through life always wanting? You know, and they thought about it for a little while. And then this little five-year-old boy, you know, piped up in his little voice and he said, trouble. All right, that that about sums it up. You get trouble. In the Tibetan tradition, they have this, this realm they talk about, the realm of the hungry ghosts, you know. And the hungry ghosts are these people who are captured by craving, basically. And the way that hungry ghosts are kind of portrayed is that there are these beings that have these enormous bellies, enormous bellies. And there's these little tiny mouths and these very thin throats and these incredible appetites. You know, so they're going through life, you know, trying to fill up these enormous bellies because their mouth is so small, they can never get enough. That's the nature of craving. Now, can we imagine, now can you imagine actually reaching a place in your life when you are able to retire from craving? Imagine what that would feel like. If you reached a place where you were able to retire from craving, when you had all the pleasant experiences, all the pleasant sensations, all the pleasant uh, uh, gratifications you could possibly imagine, you had them all. Hmm? Where every single desire that you could ever imagine having or had in the past was fulfilled and you felt totally satisfied and not only did you get everything that you wanted but also those pleasant sensations managed to stay interesting and intriguing to you (laughs) they never changed (laughs) now that probably is not ever going to be a reality it's never going to be reality, probably, except possibly at the moment of our death. Now, it is interesting that when, you know, we get, sometimes we do get what we want in this life. You know, that's interesting. We get it. Surprise, surprise. We get what we want. And isn't it interesting what happens? Oh, we lose interest so quickly. You know? It loses the power to satisfy us. So our desires instead become more sophisticated and more complex. You know, you see this sometimes in retreats. You know, remember the first day of the retreat, you know, and everything was a mess. And you probably thought, oh, all I want is a little bit of calm. Oh, you know, you think that would seem so desirable, you know, just a little bit of calm. Well, maybe you got it by today. Isn't it boring? <laughs> Isn't it? Oh! Calm, you know, it's so boring, you know. I like enough calm, you know. And then we think, well, okay, I've done the calm bit. Now I'd like a really nice experience. You know, a really grand spiritual experience I'd like. Maybe you get that too. And fortunately, we don't have, you know, we don't have groups in this retreat because sometimes what happens when we have group interviews, of course, people come together and, you know, you feel satisfied until you hear somebody else talking about their grand experience. 
I didn't care. I didn't have that one. You know, that's the next thing I have to get. A better enlightenment, a better experience. Well, we're wandering on and on in spiritual samsara. Now, a very close friend to craving, as you probably noticed, is aversion. Sadly, the world is uninformed about our appetites. And there is much that comes that we don't want. Much that comes that we don't want. And at times it can feel as if we're in a place of perpetual litigation with the world, you know? How do I get rid of that one? That one shouldn't have happened, you know? That one should have been different, you know? How is that one going to end? How am I going to get rid of it? There are so many feelings and thoughts and body sensations and experiences that come to us unbidden and unchosen. We find ourselves in difficult situations that we can't always control and we say, why is this happening to me? Trying to hold on to the pleasant. Trying to push away the unpleasant. You know, in that place or that way of living, suddenly our lives seem to require so much effort, so much struggle, as we're caught up in this endless tug of war. And what is happening in that place is that our sense of being, our sense of who we are, is being governed or dictated by the impact of sensations on our consciousness. So that we are giving sensations, pleasant and unpleasant, the power to determine our well-being and our happiness. Busy in this endless tug of war of trying to get rid of the pleasant, unpleasant, trying to hold on to the pleasant, we lose sight of the way that we have surrendered spaciousness and equanimity and compassion and above all, freedom. And the Buddha spoke about three kinds of craving that make an impact on our lives. There is the craving for the pleasant, you know, and that includes the sensations, the experiences, the thoughts, the sights, the sounds, all the pleasant experiences, sensations we would like to have. There is the craving for becoming, becoming something or someone, you know, like that includes the craving, you know, whether it's a craving to become a prime minister, or the craving to become a Buddha, or the craving even for happiness. And there is also the craving for non-becoming, which is the craving to get rid of things, the craving to make things end. Now these three areas of craving keeps us pretty busy. Mm -hmm. And craving is like, it's like a saboteur, you know? It steals space or freedom. Sometimes the example that's used is the one that, you know, if a thief goes into a marketplace and meets a saint, all he sees is his pockets. 
That's what happens to us in the landscape of craving. I have a person, I don't know if you've ever, hopefully nobody here is an insurance salesman. Um, I have a person I meet with regularly in my life. You know, every couple of years, he, he, he wants to sell me insurance. And he's a very lovely, he's a lovely man, the sweetest guy, but his job is that he wants to sell me insurance. And I came to realize that then the way that he gets to sell me insurance is actually by trying to scare me to death. You know, so he sits there in my house and he goes through this really long, elaborate, complex list of all the terrible things that could happen to me in my life. Things I've never thought of, you know. <laughs> things I don't even want to think about, you know, like he says, you know, imagine the worst, of course it'll never happen, he says, it'll never happen, just, but imagine what you would do if your house burnt down and your children had an accident and your husband died and your car was stolen. And my eyes are getting bigger and bigger, you know, as it gets into this really big thing of all of these disastrous things that could happen to me. And I realized that, you know, by trying to evoke fear, he wants to evoke also the desire to protecting me. And sometimes when I'm talking with him, and I keep inviting him back because I love this conversation, you know. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes, I, last time I was talking to him, I was, I was trying to imagine him talking to the Buddha. And you know, the Buddha says, there's suffering in life, and he would say, I've got a policy just for that, you know, and the Buddha would say, all things are changing, don't worry, we can protect you against that, you know, and the Buddha might say, there is no self, we'll get one for you, we'll make sure, you know? I imagine this kind of conversation going on and on and on and on. So basically what's happening in that is to try and more and more get us in touch with this place of fear and give it reality. You know, that if fear has that reality, then I'm going to move out and do something to get rid of it. Well, think of what happens, you know, in your life, in your mind, when you're in the grip of craving. When you want to really get something or really get rid of something. The way that your world gets smaller. It gets smaller and smaller. How, how our vision contracts. Sometimes when we're in the grip of craving, we have a remarkable concentration. You know? But it's a really unwise concentration. It doesn't lead to well-being. It doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to freedom. But it's a concentration that leads to control and heedlessness and pain. And when we're in the grip of, of craving, it's a quality of concentration, actually, that makes us want to close off to other people, to the world, and to ourselves. And that closing off in itself is suffering. It's interesting that that closing off in itself is suffering. But sometimes we're, we're willing to accept that suffering of closing off because it feels like it's in the service of some greater pleasure. Now, the force of craving, I think also, it does close us off to compassion. You know, it's very difficult to be compassionate to our world, to ourselves, to other people, when we're entangled in wanting, because it's difficult to give. It's difficult to be generous. It's difficult to share. It's difficult to offer when we are caught in the grip of need and wanting. It's certainly very difficult to be compassionate to ourselves. 
One of my first teachers once said to me, that letting go is a gift of compassion to yourself. Because it is that willingness to disentangle, that willingness to let go of the infatuation with craving that allows us to open and awaken, that allows us to be present, that allows us to see the illusoriness of fear and separation. There's a line in the tarot which says, the secret waits for those whose eyes are unclouded by longing. Now, as we practice, what we are doing is we are learning the art of being still, of being equally present with all things, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. And we see that craving, if you really sense it when it happens, it's a kind of energy, isn't it? It's a very powerful energy. And it's an energy of desire that keeps us moving. And part of what the energy of craving does is it makes us want to jump into what we don't have. So craving makes us want to jump into a place where we are not present. It wants us to jump into a, another moment, another experience, another thought, another sensation, instead of being where we are. So the very nature of craving is that it disconnects us from where we are as we look for that experience or moment that fits in with our desires and expectations. So often it feels like craving makes us want to jump into a better moment or an ideal moment. And the strange thing is that we have this idea that there is an ideal moment. <coughs> we have this idea that there's such a thing as an ideal moment. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Disneyland. The Disneyland, I, I can't, I just, it just slips me the exact phrase that, just, that Disneyland uses to promote itself. But it's something about the place where happiness never ends. And, and you go to Disneyland, and it's like everything there is presenting this illusion of perfection. You know? It's probably the cleanest place on earth. You know? And it's so wholesome. You know? And everybody smiles. Everybody works there, smiles all the time. They've got these most amazing teeth. And they smile all the time, you know, and they're so happy. And so you have this idea that here is this place, you know, everybody should be happy in Disneyland. And then one time I read this story in, in Time Magazine, which is a source often of great, great illumination, but Time Magazine, this reporter visited Disneyland, and you know who's the central character in Disneyland? Mickey Mouse, right? Mickey Mouse was going around, and he's grinning, and he's shaking hands with everybody, and hugging everybody, you know. And Mickey Mouse was overheard talking to Donald Duck. <laughs> and Mickey Mouse was saying to Donald Duck, I gotta get some overtime. I'm oh I, I owe my psychiatrist so much money, you know. So here was this illusory, you know, land of endless happiness. Well, it wasn't quite what it seemed. <laughs> we do this too. You know, we think about better moments, don't we? We're eating breakfast, and we're thinking about what are we going to have for lunch. 
You know, we're sitting, and we think, oh, well, when they're sitting, it's over, you know, so that's moment sitting. I mean, it's so much happier when I'm going to be doing my walking. You know, and then we're doing my walking, and we think, I know it's going to be better when I'm sitting. You know? How often we're doing this jumping into the next moment, when I have a better thought, a different kind of feeling, then I will have, have, be happy. That has a companion of feeling that where we are is actually not acceptable, is not enough. Beethoven, Rossi, very wonderful Zen teacher, says an enlightened person is someone who always has what they need. How wonderful. An enlightened person always has what they need. It doesn't matter if they're sitting on a subway, sitting on a mountaintop, in with a bunch of people at a cocktail party, or sitting on a meditation cushion. An enlightened person always has what they need. That their richness and happiness and freedom is not governed by sensation or by experience, but flows from within themselves, from their own inner well of wisdom and happiness. That in understanding what is true, that there is nothing that can be taken away and nothing that can be added, no matter what occurs or no matter what is encountered. Even the idea of imperfection does not arise because these words become irrelevant, perfect and imperfect, because it is about suchness. Things are as they are. They speak with their own truth, without the power actually to govern our freedom or lack of it. Resting in that fullness of wisdom, nothing can be disturbed, and everything is embraced. If an enlightened person is one who always has what they need, then it's not too big a stretch of the imagination to say that the definition of an unenlightened person is that they never have what they need, or that they rarely have what they need. Craving as I already mentioned, is the active face of anxiety and separation, trying to gain and grasp in order to cover up or to distance that us, us from that painful underlying feeling of not enough. We need to discover whether this is actually true. Perhaps it's not. Perhaps we always have what we need. Perhaps it's more true to say that there is always enough. This is what we are learning about in our practice, in our exploration here. We are learning to pause and to step out of the whirlwind of craving to step out of the whirlwind of pursuing and rejection and to look more closely at this assumption that we may have that we need something other and that there is not enough. We are learning to look more deeply at this assumption 
that we may carry, that our happiness and well-being rests upon the satisfaction of some momentary restless appetite. There's a wonderful story in the Buddhist tradition. It's the story of Angulimala. He was a wild murderer in the time of the Buddha. And he'd made this vow to kill a thousand people. And everybody in the whole country was terrified of him. And when he killed somebody, he chopped off a finger and he made a necklace of all these chopped off fingers. So he was quite a fearsome character, you can imagine. Anyway, he got up to 999 people he'd killed, and he wore necklaces of 999 fingers. And he decided the Buddha was going to be the thousandth. So he hid in the forest where he knew a place where the Buddha was going to be walking by on the road. And he waited until the Buddha passed and jumped out of the forest and started shouting at the Buddha and started running after him. And then he realized that no matter how fast he was running and the Buddha was walking really slowly, that he wasn't getting any closer to the Buddha. So he started shouting after the Buddha and saying, Stop you! Why don't you stop? And the Buddha turned around and said to him, I have stopped, Angulimala. Why don't you stop? And of course, as in all good, good Buddhist stories, <laughs> That was a moment of awakening for Angulimala. That he could stop. That he could step out of this momentum of craving and pushing and just stop. Now that kind of stopping, that pausing, doesn't mean that the whole storm around us is going to stop. Of course, the world continues to unfold. Our bodies continue to move. We continue to have thoughts. We continue to have feelings. But what goes is any form of making our home within them. Stopping makes the forces of craving and wanting very visible to us. And held within that stopping is a tremendous wisdom. We learn to illuminate those forces of wanting with calmness and clarity and attentiveness. And we discover in that illumination a tremendous contentment and well-being and happiness. We begin to discover an unshakable equanimity that is more than equanimity. We begin actually perhaps to find a place of completeness within ourselves. Where who we are and our sense of who we are is not governed by anything at all. And so it has no limits. Perhaps we will rediscover that there never was not enough. That we always have what we need. That every moment that we are in, we always have what we need for sensitivity. We always have what we need for inspiration. We always have what we need for connectedness. We always have what we need for appreciation. We always have what we need for understanding. And learning to understand that, to, to see that, to connect that with that more deeply, we really understand that there never was not enough. And there's a tremendous sense of happiness and stillness within that. 
you have a couple of moments, quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.